This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on a Dame. We've got a terrific Friday show for you. And let's start right now with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix and the latest on the COVID-19 pandemic. Minister, thank you once again for your time. Hey, great to be on the show. Minister, let's start with the uh, risk of COVID spread on airplanes. We see Air Canada and WestJet now both dropping their physical distance rules on flights. Both airlines had been leaving empty seats between passengers to reduce the COVID risk. Now both airlines saying they will stop doing that. Well, they will start selling all the seats on their on their planes. Your thoughts on that? Do you have concerns? Well, uh, there are always concerns. Um, physical distancing, you've probably heard me say it 50 times on your show and maybe 150 times everywhere else. Physical distancing is important. We, in our modeling we did on May 4th, and when we announced our reopening plan, we put it at the top of our hierarchy of actions that we can take physical distancing. And then there are engineering measures and administrative measures, and at the bottom was PPE, or essentially wearing masks. So physical distancing is very important. It's always going to be a challenge to do physical distance on airplanes. It has always been a challenge. It is even when the middle seat is uh, is open. So obviously we have concerns and we've expressed those concerns. The federal government, which is the sole regulator here, has said they uh, support physical distancing as well. You heard Dr. Tam in answering the question, who's the chief medical health officer of Canada, answered this question, said that from a public health perspective, physical distancing two meters apart was vitally important. But she also said, and this is clear here, that, it, that if you're not going to have physical distancing to the same effect, all the other measures are important too. And this is important for what's happened in BC in the last couple of weeks and over the last few months. You go on the BC CDC website, you see flights where people uh, who are identified that subsequently with COVID-19 were on over that period of time. And there's right. a list of those flights. And, and what it says to us is the screening of passengers, which is an airline responsibility, and the individual responsibility of passengers not to travel sick is vitally important, especially on airplanes, because not traveling sick, just like not working sick, just not like not going to school sick, is a very important way to, to stop COVID-19. So right. there are concerns. It's a, it's a federal matter. But yeah. if you're going to have uh, the middle seat filled, then all of the other things that the airlines are doing and passengers have to do are even more important. Would you like to see the federal government in- intervene here? I mean, you've got the airlines saying that they're following recommendations from the International Air Transport Association. This is an industry association that represents the airline industry. So I'm just wondering, who's in charge here? Is it the airlines or the government? Do you want the federal government to do something about this? The federal government is in charge. They're in charge. And they've made the decision to advise on physical spacing or physical distancing on planes. They advise it. And uh, but they haven't made it mandatory. That's their call, and they haven't made it mandatory. And they're also saying, do you think they should? Distancing is important. I think it's their call. But I, I, and, it, and it's, it's going to be their call. But I'm I've expressed pretty publicly my concern about physical distancing, and I want to remind under the circumstances passengers because we got to deal with this reality, right? Yeah. Not to travel sick. 
and to, of course, wear their masks, and to understand when they're traveling that they're going to have to wear their masks if they're flying to Toronto, getting on the plane, waiting for however long it takes for the plane to take off, landing. You're talking about five and a half hours of wearing a mask. All of that you have to understand. So I really encourage, what I encourage people to do, everyone in your audience to do before they travel, is to go to the websites of the airlines where they have lots of information about what they're doing so that they fully understand the risk. Let me give you just a really personal example, uh, Mike. Uh, You know, I have type 1 diabetes, so my risks are higher than yours. And I'm older than you, so my risks are higher than yours, right? And, And so I have to assess that. Now, I do travel between Vancouver and Victoria, as part of my job, and uh, and I have been really since the beginning of the pandemic working with uh, Dr. Henry. But I have to take that into account on every decision I make, and I do. And so I'm very obviously uh, conscious of that because my personal risk is compared to many people, not all, but many people, relatively high. Okay, what is your recommendation or to the federal government on on this file? Like, I take it your I take your point that it's their jurisdiction, but you have demonstrated in the past you're not afraid to to tell the feds what you think, especially like on on shutting down the border, for example. So, what are you telling the feds on this one? Would you like the Would you like the airlines to maintain those physical distancing and keep those seats empty? I think physical distancing is very important. That's my advice. That's what Dr. Tam says. That's what the federal government says. So and the, so the federal government. That, so just I, so I'm clear, the federal. You're saying the federal government should order the airlines to continue physical distancing. Is that I, your position? I, I'm saying they got to review the information. They haven't ordered them up to now. So yeah. it was the airlines that decided to have the physical distancing and are now uh, uh, taking it away. But what I'm really conscious of. I want everyone to hear me on this. Yeah. Don't travel sick. It does, because whether the middle seat is filled or not filled, traveling sick is a significant risk to everybody. So the, my advice to everyone is don't travel sick. And I know he wants to get involved in the, in the federal issue here, but I've made it pretty clear that I've asked the federal government, I did on Tuesday, people heard me, to provide their view. And they have. Um, their view is that physical distancing is important too, uh, but that... Uh, they think that, uh, in the case of the airlines, that that should be a decision for the airline, and the airline has to put alternate measures in place. That's the view of the federal government, and, and that's what it's going to be. So our advice to people is uh, go with your eyes open and be informed. Do you think that I've heard supporters of the airline industry say, look, we have to do this just to survive economically because they're losing so much money not selling these empty seats. Is, is that legitimate to, to bring that kind of that factor into the equation here as we talk about a public health emergency and a, and a pandemic that, we, you know, we should be allowing these airlines to sell these seats because if they don't, they might go out of business. Airlines are really important. They're really important in a country this big, right? So they are really important and, and we want them to succeed. Of course, we want them to succeed. I think the issue here is, and to their credit, they're putting in place uh, high level cleaning measures their screening as required. Of course, it's obligatory by Transport Canada to wear masks uh, now on flights and, and, and other transportation, right? So, I mean, I think the airlines care about this, and they understand that public confidence is important. And so there is a commercial question on all sides, which is they've got to obviously build public confidence in travel, and that's important. And they're certainly trying to do that. So I don't want to be, you don't want to be critical of people who are making a, a legitimate effort. But these issues of public confidence are important. And all I can say from my, from my end of it, Mike, is physical distancing, I'm going to continue to say it, is important everywhere. It's right. the reason why we've limited gatherings, for example, to 50, even though that, as you know, and as everybody know, 
has consequences for businesses, many businesses who are, uh, you know, from arts businesses to others who, uh, who uh, you know, would like it to be higher. But we have it at 50. Dr. Henry has established it at 50 for good public health reasons. We think physical, physical distancing is at the top of our hierarchy of concerns, of, of measures to stop the transmission of COVID-19. Said it many times, saying it again today. Speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, we can we continue to hear stories of American tourists possibly sneaking across the border into Canada and going on vacation. Maybe they're misrepresenting their plans to border officials and saying, I'm just planning to drive straight through to Alaska, and then they go on vacation instead. We heard Premier John Horgan yesterday raise some concerns about this. Are you are you worried about that? Are you worried about Americans coming over the border? Uh, I'm I'm concerned about I'm concerned about the issue in general, and you know I'm an advocate for keeping the border closed to visitors, and right. will continue to be for some time. Uh, I think that um, there's two important things. There are some people who have used what's called the Alaska exception yeah. to come across the border, and in some cases, um, Canadian Border Services have taken action against those people, right? And and uh, and you've heard examples of that. What I would say is this. If you're going to a border, I mean, we've all gone across the American border many times, probably, if we live in Vancouver, right, and uh, in our lives. And to, to make the mistake of misleading a border agent about your intentions in the country uh, is a really, what's the right term? I'm trying to find the right term, Michael, stupid thing Illegal? to do. Illegal? Illegal, but also stupid um, with consequences, right? And so if if people are doing that, and it appears some people have done it, then that's wrong. What I would say, though, is the statistics are pretty clear. There are not a lot of visitors coming across the border. In fact, except for Canadians returning to Canada and essential travelers, there's not a lot of that. The one warning I would give to people, because there's a tendency, I think, to draw conclusions really quickly, there are quite a few Canadians returning to Canada, as they can, as citizens of the country who have American license plates right now. And there are um, people, Americans, who are in the country prior to the border and visitors being limited or here on essential travel or whatever who have license plates. So the key is um, when you see that, not to, you know, not to take any action. We have to be respectful. But our expectation is Canadian Border Services will enforce the rules. That's the message from the Premier to the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Friedland, and I know the federal government is determined to do that too. So it's a concern, but, and it's one we're following and raising with the federal government. Okay, last question for you. We've, we've heard the government lay out some plans for allowing visits to residents of long-term care homes under very strict and tightly controlled conditions. When will that begin? When will those visits start? It's, uh, so the guidelines have been changed, the, the rules have been changed, and um, the care homes have a period of time to get organized, so they have to submit plans uh, to uh, the health authorities as to how they're going to manage the visit. So we're hoping that those um, will happen at the very latest, start to happen in each care home by about uh, January the 13th, I think, the week after next. In some cases, care homes are already ready and, and will move more quickly than that. July the, July the 13th? Yeah, July the 13th, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. my apologies, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've, I've lost a little bit lost track of what month we're in, Mike. <laughs> <It's understandable. laughs> it all feels the same. I, I am pretty happy that we're in July, though. I think that's... Uh, it just feels that, like January. It, just it feels, feels, like, it feels January. like there's yeah. there was March, and it feels like, yeah. you know, in some ways we're still in March, you know? I understand. Thank you, Minister, for coming on today. Hey, take care, eh? All right, welcome back. Let's talk about that fatal pit bull attack in Kamloops now. This is tragic. Police say that a house on Singh Street in Kamloops reported that a pit bull 
owned by a resident in the house, attacked a man who had been visiting the home. The man later died as a result of this uh, pit bull attack. The BC uh, coroner is now investigating the circumstances of this death. The dog, we're told, was secured on the deck of the house. Police say conservation officers plan to later sedate and euthanize that dog. So let's talk about pit bulls now. Now, we see in other jurisdictions they have banned this particular breed of dog. There's been talk about that in British Columbia for a long time. It hasn't happened here. We've we've seen some jurisdictions reverse a pit bull ban. But this death and this uh, fatal attack has reignited this debate. Let's check in with Bill Thielman now, very well-known commentator here in British Columbia. Uh, he's a friend of the show here. And he's been very vocal in his support for a pit bull ban. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hiya, Bill. Hey, Sweeney. Thanks a lot for coming on. So give me your thoughts on this. When you heard about this fatal attack in Kamloops, I know this is an issue you followed for a long time. What were your thoughts? Well, I was saddened by it, of course. And this one's, uh, like many of these attacks, Mike, is particularly tragic because this wasn't, uh, this was a resident's friend. Uh, so the right. dog is, is in the home. Uh, someone comes to visit and the dog attacks the dog and kills the man. Oh. And we see these stories over and over. Uh, I, I, really, unfortunately, a lot of them in the United States, uh, 30 to 50 kind of attacks like this that are fatals, and a lot of them are children. Uh, and I think we've been fortunate in British Columbia that we haven't lost a child yet. But I, you know, when I was writing for 24 Hours Vancouver a newspaper in the Taiyi, I got an exclusive story of a, a young woman whose uh, six-year-old was playing in Crab Park, and they were walking home, in this, and they had their dog with them, a little dog, and this pit bull just bounded right across the park and attacked the little girl, bit her in the face, bit her in the leg. Uh, we had pictures of it, and, um, you know, so these, I fear that uh, it will take a child dying in British Columbia before politicians will be willing to take on what is a very strong pit bull lobby, has a lot of supporters, and they are absolutely opposed to what I think is necessary, which is a ban on the breed. Okay, you mentioned some of those fatality statistics. Could you go over those again? Like, how many sure. people actually die from these attacks? Well, there's a, a group called DogsBite.org in the United States, and they cover the American one. We, we have not enough statistics here in Canada, i got to tell you. But, uh, for example, between 2005 and 2018, there were 471 American dog deaths, people killed by dogs, and pit bulls were 66% of those. So, you know, this is the most dangerous breed. And, uh, you know, the, you'll get people calling you for weeks on end after this or emailing you saying, my pit bull is wonderful. And I'm sure that some of them are. Uh, I, you know, there's no question about that. Yeah. But if you look at the overwhelming evidence, these uh, dogs were bred for years to be in fights. They have incredible muscular power in the jaws. They don't let go. Uh, we've seen stories of police officers having to, to shoot pit bulls because they could not get them to disengage from a person or, or another dog. They kill a lot of small dogs, too. It's not just uh, uh, human fatalities <coughs> attacks on humans. And if you go to dogsbite.org, you just see, they document the cases with media reports. They put the pictures up, and it is tragic to, to read through there. And I, I had I had no skin in this game. I, I I'm not. I have had no run-ins with a pit bull. I don't know. Didn't know anything about them until I kind of came across this as an issue. But the more I learned, the more I was concerned. Okay. Do you do you own a dog yourself? I mean, do you like dogs? I do like dogs. I, yeah. I've owned three dogs over the years. I don't okay. per- currently own a dog. Okay, we got a dog at home. We love dogs, right? Now, the pit bull breed is not my particular cup of tea, but when I when I hear people defend the pit bull, they say, look, this is not a case about a bad dog. This is a case about a bad owner. So if you have a dog that bites someone, that is the fault of the owner, not necessarily the dog. That dog has not been properly trained uh, or that dog has not been properly controlled. What are your thoughts on that? This is not. This is not. We should blame the owner, maybe not the dog. 
Well, <clears throat> there must be an awful lot of bad owners. I, I mean, look, there's no question that a bad owner will, can create a bad dog. And it can, you know, any dog can be a, a, a bad dog with a bad owner, and that can still have serious uh, repercussions. But, uh, you know, a, a bad dog owner who owns a chihuahua will just be obnoxious. A bad dog <laughs> owner with a pit bull uh, is kind of like, uh, you know, somebody who's shooting a gun off in the street. <clears throat> you never know what's going to happen with that. So, What's happened? I mean, to give you some idea of the dangerousness of these dogs, U.S. military bases where there's guys around with guns all day, ban them. You're not allowed to have a pit bull if you're in the Army or the Marine Corps and you're living on base. No pit bulls because they're too dangerous. Winnipeg has banned them since 1990. Ontario has banned them the entire province since 2005. So there's, and there's many effective? other municipalities. Has, it been, has any of these bans been effective, like the number of yeah. deaths or attacks gone down? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, if, if 66% of the American fatalities are from pit bulls and you take the pit bull out of the equation, it drops off dramatically. And there's other things you can do. That's not the only thing. I mean, there are dangerous dog bylaws. We have some here. There are some municipalities that have those. Um, certainly, like, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I see pit bulls around the streets in Vancouver and elsewhere. No muzzle. Uh, no, I, the restraint of that dog is entirely dependent on the owner, and that scares the sea the, the, uh, out of me. <clears throat> because I see people who, there's no way if that dog decides to go after anybody, you, they can pull it off of them uh, in any short period of time. Okay. And so, you know, I, I just am concerned, but I, I will tell you that pit bull owners, uh, a fraction of them perhaps are quite nasty if you if you even suggest anything about uh, restricting oh, sure. pit bulls and well, they go like, after you they've gone after me repeatedly i don't it, you know it doesn't bother me but they've made threats they've uh, sent obscene emails and things every time i've written a column about it and i think politicians are afraid of them well a lot of people love their dogs and they say that uh, they, they will make the point that this is about responsible dog ownership and it's not about blaming the breed let me play this for you now have you heard sure. of caesar caesar milan the dog whisperer the famous, mm -hmm. the famous dog trainer. Okay, so people might remember. Like I'm, I like watching his shows occasionally, and he for a long time had a pet pit bull. His name was Daddy. I always remember that was the name of his pit bull. This is like the sweetest dog in the world, and his TV show has passed away now. But you know, he is a fan of the pit bull, and he's opposed to these uh, breed specific bands. So let me play this for you, Bill. Get your take on it. This is uh, the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan. What we're seeing here is whenever a breed comes in, into fashion uh, and we don't control the power, we blame them. Yeah. You see it? So in the 70s it was the Doberman. Okay, we couldn't control them. Let's wipe them off. Right. Right? And let's create myth that if, when they become five years of age, they're going to turn into human. That's a myth. Yeah. You know, Rottweilers, oh, uh, they would create movies out of that. Oh, they're from the devil. <laughs> and now the pit bull, he, he doesn't, he can't unlock his jaw. But Petey from the Little Rascals was a pit bull. Okay, he's saying it's basically a myth, and we've seen other, other breeds in the past. He mentioned Rottweilers, for example, or Doberman's got a bad rap in the past. Now this is just the latest one to get a bad rap, and it's a myth. Your thoughts? No, it, it, well, he's not wrong in saying that Doberman's and, and uh, other dogs, Rottweilers, <coughs> uh, had a bad rap, it's, and it was legitimate because those dogs would be the second and third highest of fatal, uh, dog fatalities. But, uh, Mike, let me read you in, in, in comparison. Uh, Dr. David Billmore, he's the director of plastic surgery, pediatric plastic surgery for kids at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And he says, and I quote, based on my extensive experience, 
I believe that the risk posed by pit bulls is equivalent to placing a loaded gun with a safety off on the coffee table. In my opinion, these dogs should be banned. So there's a guy who deals with the effects of pit bull attacks on kids on a regular basis. And there's more and more doctors who've said, you know, they've just seen these horrendous uh, dog bite situations with fatalities and severe disfigurement, all those kind of things. So, uh, look, some dog... Some some pit bulls will probably be peaceful their entire lives. Uh, and, and when I say breed bent, I should be clear. I'm not talking about uh, euthanizing dogs. They would uh, What they did in Ontario, they said you can't bring any more pit bulls or breed pit bulls. And so they just kind of slowly disappear. They're kind of grandfathered out. So what, um, what do you want to see done in B.C.? What kind of I, rule I, I would like to see B.C. ban pit bulls, period. I think yeah. that's what should be done. I think uh, we'll see more attacks like the sad one, uh, the fatality in Kamloops, until we do that. And uh, it's just a, an ongoing thing. And it's, you know, other municipalities have done it. The province of Ontario has done it. We should do it here. Yes, Bill Tillman, as we continue talking about pit bulls after that fatal pit bull attack the other day in Kamloops, should the breed be banned? Let's go right to your phone calls now. Mark in New West. Hey, Mark. Hi there. Um, yeah, for my work, uh, well, pre-COVID, I would go into houses quite a bit for insurance purposes. And, you know, these pit bull owners are oblivious uh, to my concerns or the dangers. So I'd, I'd stop and they'd get the pit bull, put the pit bull in a bedroom. So yeah. muzzles don't go far enough because this attack, this death, someone went into their house. Right. So, you know, you've got contractors, visitors, children's friends. I've been hoping for a ban for years. Muzzles don't go far enough. We've got to ban these because that's where these injuries and these deaths happen in the house, in the backyard. No muzzles. Yeah, thanks for the call. Yeah, no, quite often it's it can be a family member, it can be a relative, it can be a child in a house. I mean, sometimes there's a random attack on the street for sure. Warner on the line. Hi. Is it Warner or Jackson? Warner. Warner. Go ahead, Warner. Yeah, I don't believe the dog should be banned. I have a pit bull. It's 110 pounds. He's a monster. He's very powerful. But I don't believe it's an aggressive dog. It's the way the dog is brought up. My dog has been brought up with a family. It's brought around with kids. I have house parties with 50, 60 people in there. My dog is friendly to everybody. It's not an aggressive dog. It's not meant to be an aggressive dog. It's the way it's been brought up. There's people that walk these dogs around, and they, they want it to be their security thing. They want it to be aggressive. They yeah. attack other dogs, and that's not acceptable. I, I agree. That's not acceptable. But it's not the breed. It's the guy who has the dog. Bill Thielman, what do you, Bill, what do you say to that? Well, there's just so many, you know, I'm, I wish the caller luck with that, but there's so many stories of uh, attacks on a family by the pit bull that's owned by the family. Uh, just uh, just a couple of days ago, July 1st in Indiana, a 62-year-old man killed by his own pit bull. The police came, they sprayed it with pepper spray. That didn't stop the attack. They had to shoot the dog, and it was his own dog, and he owned oh, pit man. bulls for quite some time. So these, you know, these stories, uh, you know, there are people who uh, are able to... Um, have a pit bull and not have a problem, but the ones that do have a problem, it's fatal. Jackson on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Yes. Uh, one one other issue we're forgetting is that these dogs are, are are raised, used, and raised for fighting other pit bulls. So, for instance, if you've got a pit bull and you go park downtown, especially on the downtown east side, and leave it in your car, your car will get broken by these guys because they know they steal it and they will go take it to fight other pit bulls. That's a big issue. It's because they're they're a lot of them are used for fighting other pit bulls. And you okay. go to some, some, some places in Surrey, some farms, and there, there are pit bull fights. So. Okay, th- thank you for the call. Well, I mean, they're historically bred to, to fight. I mean, that's why they call them a pit bull. They're bred to fight in a pit. 
But yep. I, I wonder, Bill, I mean, you know, dog fighting in B.C., is that really going on? Well, there's some of that, but, you know, that's, uh, I think the other point is the main one. For hundreds of years, these dogs were bred, and they were bred for one purpose. And if you look at the jaw strength and the ability and the the aggressiveness of a pit bull, it's all genetic. It's not, you know, yeah. the dog might be really nice, but we've seen stories, very sad stories of people who said, my dog was a, it was a sweetie, et cetera, et cetera, and then it attacked a child. Uh, just snapped. Something happened, odd happened, and all of a sudden the dog snapped, and uh, we've seen that here in, in Vancouver. In, um, in Victoria, a case a few years ago where the family uh, dog attacked a two- or three-month-old. Fortunately, it wasn't a fatal, but it could have been easily. And I just think it's they're just way too unpredictable. There's just too many dangers there. Um, if you, you know, and the people who defend these dogs, uh, some of them have learned the hard way that, you know, things go wrong. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Rebecca Breder, hello. Hi there. Thanks for thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I don't even know where to start with this one. I, I'm I have to disagree completely with uh, with your guest on the show. Uh, I'm an animal rights lawyer. And right. I and so I come across these issues all the time. And I'll tell you in a nutshell why banning. Uh, so-called pit bulls is so wrong. First of all, I'd like to know if the guest could even define what a pit bull is, unless you have DNA evidence to show uh, that the animal is actually a pit bull. A pit bull, by definition, is a mixed breed. And one of the biggest problems with banning uh, pit bulls is that it is unenforceable. It is very difficult to enforce, which is why actually Vancouver reversed its pit bull ban. North Vancouver reversed its pit bull ban. Delta, Castlevard, Cumberland, Pitt Meadows. Ontario, which has had a pit bull ban for a long time, is now actually considering to reverse its pit bull ban because they're finding it very difficult to enforce. Okay, let's get, let's get Bill's reaction on that. Bill, how would you enforce it? Well, I think it's quite easy to enforce if you do a, a brand breed, a breed ban, which they've done in Ontario since 2005. They've done it uh, since 1990 in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, you can define pit bulls. It's fairly easy. It's done in legislation. Uh, so this is just one of the myths that pit bull advocates put out there to say, well, it's impossible, etc. Um, it's quite easy to do. It's been done. Rebecca, what do you say to that? Why it's been done, but it's been done uh, in a very incorrect way, which is why they've reversed it in so many jurisdictions. A pit bull, by definition, is an American pit bull terrier or an American Staffordshire terrier or it's Staffordshire bull terrier. I'll give you three quick examples of where pit bulls, so-called pit bulls, were wrongfully defined. There was a Fort St. John uh, attack in the Christmas uh, time of 2015. They thought that the dog was a pit bull when really it was an American bulldog. In Yale Town in the summer of 2015, there was a so-called pit bull attack where the dog attacked a puppy. The dog turned out to be a mastiff bulldog cross in Richmond. I mean, I could go on and on with a list of when the dog was supposed to be a pit bull, but wasn't. Rebecca, would you be willing to concede that the pit bull has historically been bred to be aggressive and that there's some genetic residual genes there that makes this an aggressive breed of dog? 
Actually, if you look historically, the pit bull, the pure pit bull breed uh, comes from the UK, and they were actually bred as nanny dogs, and they were used as nanny dogs because of how loyal and compassionate and gentle these dogs are. The, yes, unfortunately, once they, once they, they brought these dogs into, uh, into America, they started breeding these dogs for fighting. But it does not mean that the pit bull okay. dog in, in and of himself is vicious. Okay, really Rebecca, thank, thank, do- you, thank you for calling in. I'm grateful to you. I, I hate to step on you, but we're out of time. Bill, we just got 30 seconds here if you want to wrap up. Yeah, I've debated Rebecca before. I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of pit bull myths. The dogsbite.org uh, uh, organization website, you can look at them all and see that. But you can identify pit bulls. You can ban them. They've done it before. It works. Okay. Uh, they're dangerous. You know, thank you. Thank you for out. coming. Bill, thank you for coming on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline now. The heavy oil pipeline would pump diluted bitumen from the Alberta oil sands to Burnaby for export to Asia by supertanker. There has been a fierce battle over this project for many years, especially from critics who feel an oil spi- a fear and an oil spill into the ocean. But supporters of the Trans Mountain Pipeline celebrating this week after the project scored a major legal victory. The Supreme Court of Canada this week dismissed an appeal from a group of B.C. First Nations opposed to the pipeline. Supporters of the project say that was the last legal challenge to the project. The project now is a clear path to get built and completed. But opponents of the pipeline say the fight is not over. All right, let's talk about this now. we got both sides of it for you. Adam Pankratz is on the line. He's a UBC business professor. He supports the project. Adam, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Peter McCartney. Uh, Peter McCartney, he's a, a campaigner, climate change campaigner for the Wilderness Committee. He's opposed to the project. Hi, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys, for both of you. Peter, let me start with you first. This is obviously a, a setback for people opposed to the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline this week. What are your thoughts on it, and does this mean the fight is over now? You know, I mean, it's really disappointing. Um, it, we're definitely grateful to the First Nations who really took this legal challenge as far as they could. Uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, yeah, it's it sucks to hear that the Supreme Court won't uh, won't hear their arguments. But you know, the fight is definitely not over. I think, um, you know, they basically have to build a, a project the size of a SkyTrain all the way from Edmonton to Burnaby, and we've seen already, you know, without major protests or anything getting in the way, uh, they're already months behind schedule in their deadlines. And you know, I think. We have the moral clarity on our side. It is so clearly wrong to build a polluting pipeline across unceded territory during a climate crisis. And we have the economic realities on our side. 
Um, you know, even Deloitte recently said that oil demand globally may have peaked already as early as 2019. And we, we may never see oil prices come back to the level that would support uh, more tar sands development. So those two things we have on our side, you know, the politics are the only thing keeping this thing going right now. And thankfully, politics, we can change. Okay, Adam Pankratz, what are your thoughts on it? Well, um, I would say if you look at this just more broadly um, before responding to Peter's thoughts directly is that uh, this is clearly a good day for the Canadian economy and obviously a good day for, for proponents of, of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. But I would, um, I would say also that if you look more holistically that this project has been more about just getting the pipeline built and the process has been really important. And I think the process has brought a lot of clarity and a lot of positive affirmation of things like First Nations rights, of things like the requirement to be environmentally responsible if we are going to put these uh, large infrastructure products uh, into production. And I think that overall, this has been a real victory for, for Canada, regardless of whether you are happy or not with the decision, the actual decision today, you should be happy with the fact that Canada, when it does choose to develop natural resources, does that in a responsible way that is unparalleled anywhere in the world. And that's something to be proud of, and that's something that we should be all be celebrating today. Okay, Peter McCartney, what do you think of that? Because we have seen the courts in our country take a very hard line when it comes to uh, First Nations uh, consultation and Indigenous rights in our country, and we've seen how this project has been ordered to go back to the drawing board in the past because they did not adequately consult First Nations on it. This time, though, you've got the highest court in the land. Uh, effectively giving uh, approval to the consultation and accommodations that have happened with First Nations. So is that a good thing? No, it's definitely not a good thing, because what the court did in their decision the other day is they accepted that Cabinet had, uh, they accepted Cabinet's word that the consultation they have done is adequate. And that, you know, that to me is really a miscarriage of justice. You can't ask uh, the people who are consulting, whether or not they did the job, if you ask the people they were consulting, they're the ones that get to decide whether this has been effective. And really, the bar in Canada has moved higher. Consultation and accommodation has existed in law for a long time. Um, but Indigenous rights are still sort of being worked out through the legal system. And we've signed on to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, really, the bar in Canada, what I think most people would accept, is that you need consent to be able to cross someone's territory. Well, okay, so um, Mike, yeah, yeah I, I would say that, that that's a little bit disappointing to hear from Peter, because really what Peter's saying there in some sense is that... Uh, because he doesn't agree with the decision, he essentially doesn't agree with the principle of the rule of law. And and it's not true to say that the, the courts are just taking the word of the federal government for what they did. Um, the courts were clear in 2018 that the federal government had not adequately consulted. They looked at what right. the federal government had done and said, no, that had been a one-way street. And that consultation was not just taking notes and then saying, oh, we consulted. It had to be a real and meaningful dialogue. And the courts were very clear on that. And that was the bar that the, the, uh, the pipeline had to, had to pass in order to get the approval by the courts after that 2018 decision. So I think to say that this has been ignored uh, and that there, there hasn't been adequate consultation is, has clearly been disproven by the courts. And if we, 
if we believe in the principle of the rule of law in this country and that then then we we see that there there has been consultation that the concerns have been listened to and the fact that there are still differing opinions on this is one thing but that does not mean that the project right. has trampled over other people's rights okay peter mccartney you know, it's interesting you say that the concerns have been listened to because that's exactly what the government did. And I, I, I admit, you know, they, they messed up the first time and they had to go back and do it again. Um, but they designed the consultation process. You know, they undertook it. They went and listened to these concerns, as you say. Um, but mostly what they did is, you know, create uh, monitoring committees. Uh, they really didn't have addressed the real issues that uh, specifically Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Coldwater have with this project crossing their territories. And so to me, you know, if you ask the First Nations, was this meaningful, and they say no, then that can't have been meaningful. Um, I'm I'm obviously not a lawyer, but to me, I would hope that the rule of law in this country protects the rights of Indigenous peoples to take care of the territory that they have uh, stewarded for millennia. And when you ask about the rule of whose law, it's very clear under Squamish law, under Tsleil-Waututh law, um, that these projects are not able to move forward. And we need to accept that there are other governance systems that have existed um, for millennia before uh, our system has been implemented over the last 150 years. Peter, would you say, you you said that the fight's fight's not over. Where does it go from here now? If if all the legal options have been exhausted here now, what is next? I mean, civil disobedience, do people lie down and block bulldozers? Do you think that will happen? I do think it will happen. You know, uh, it's something we see on many of our campaigns, and this one, people have been pretty clear you know, they're willing to, to stand up to a project like this. And you got to think, a pipeline of this scale, um, you know, it has, it's almost like a set of dominoes. They have to get 100% of the pipeline, 100% on time, and there's all sorts of things that have to fall into place um, in order to make that happen. Now, we're seeing, you know, their construction schedules that they've put out just months ago are already delayed by months. Um, and that's that's frankly just, through sheer incompetence of the people in this organization uh, that have never built a pipeline before. Kinder Morgan only owned pipelines. And so, you know, when you add protesters who are willing to uh, risk potentially a month in prison to go and stand in front of, of construction, as I know there are many people out there willing to do, um, I don't see this thing getting finished. Adam Pankratz, what do you think? Will the project get completed now? I think that's pretty much beyond doubt at this point. I mean, can it be delayed by certain things? Sure. Um, I mean, it sounds like uh, Peter is uh, preparing to, to, to do things to that nature, um, but they can do just that. They can delay it. And um, whatever Kinder Morgan may be, I think it's pretty unfair to characterize them as an incompetent organization. But they... they you know, th- this this is a project that has gone through the necessary approval, has a clear uh, finish line in sight, has the resources in place, um, is already under construction, and whether or not certain sections of it end up getting delayed for various reasons, um, the reality is the twinning of this is going to happen, and oil will flow uh, okay. sooner rather than later.
All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the project scores a major legal victory this week when the Supreme Court of Canada declined to hear an appeal against the project by a group of B.C. First Nations. Got both sides of it on our panel today. Adam Pankratz from UBC, he supports the project. Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, he is opposed to the pipeline. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Karen on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Karen. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm a supporter of the pipeline, mainly because they, um, I'm glad to hear the consultation did take place and uh, that it is going to have minimal uh, environmental impact because it's a twinning of something that already exists. So they've already got the um, you know access through forest and mountain has already been done, so you're not, like, cutting a whole new um, uh, swath of uh, forest uh, to get this put through. So I'm a big supporter of it. I want it to get to open market rather than all our oil having to go to the U.S. at a discounted rate. Um, And uh, I I find that uh, consultation does not mean that you get your way. So just because you didn't get your way shouldn't mean... (laughs) that consultation didn't occur. So that's what it sounds like, uh, a bit of sour grapes happening uh, from the part of um, these protesters that now want to get their way at all costs, even though they've had the consultation. Karen, thanks for calling in. Peter McCartney, what do you think of what she said? I think it's, it's tough to characterize this as a twinning because what they're really doing is tripling the capacity. And so we saw, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an oil spill. Um, there's been 86 oil spills along this pipeline in its lifetime. And what we're doing is putting three times the amount of oil through this corridor. So that's three times the chance um, and the certainty, really, that oil is going to spill from this pipeline over its lifetime. Um, Uh, Those are the ecological impacts that we're concerned about. Yeah, Adam, what do you say to that? Well, I'd say that actually it is literally a twinning because it's going from one pipe to two. Um, Your capacity is tripled, but that does not mean... Um, the chances of an oil spill go up three times. That's not just not how the probability works. But I think Karen brings up a lot of good points, and she's addressing the economics of this. What are we trying to do with the with the crude oil that's in Alberta? Well, we want it as Canadians to get it to world markets where it can uh, achieve the highest possible market price, and we come back and receive that uh, to pay for things that we want, like healthcare and social services. And you know. The, um, the energy industry, the oil industry, contributes over $50 billion to the balance of payments of Canada to pay for those things and the things that we want. So uh, I think Karen uh, brings up a lot of good points of uh, the market incentives that are here that this, this uh, twinning will, uh, will allow. Back to the phone lines. Dave on the open line in Burnaby. Hi, Dave. Hi there. Um, just phoning about uh, uh, the fact that Justin Trudeau stacked that Supreme Court uh, he appointed three judges. None of them are from, Brit- from uh, British Columbia. None of them are from uh, west of uh, Thunder Bay. And so what I would do is I would ask Corgan to use a notwithstanding clause, and then I would shred the Supreme Court. I'd get rid of it and, uh, and tell everybody across the nation that the Supreme Court has to be um, appointed through a panel. It has to be voted upon, and it can't be just appointed by Justin Trudeau who has a, an interest in the in the pipeline, right? Because that's, you stacked it. So as soon as I saw him do that, I thought, well, there's no chance in court for the First Nation here. He stacked okay. it. Okay, Peter, Peter McCartney, what do you think of that? 
Um, you know, I, I really am not sure of the specifics. I think um, in, in terms of how, how these judges are appointed, I imagine it was uh, similar to other points. But, we, you know, Dave brings up an interesting point, which is that this project is now being decided on, being regulated, being built by the government of Canada. Um, and that creates all sorts of weird conflicts of interest um, in that, you know, they're the ones that get to uh, investigate the oil spill when they well, have they, every they, reason and they own the, to, they own the to pipeline. cover it up. They own, and the, they own the pipeline. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that now that we have uh, a federally owned crown corporation building this pipeline, we actually, we have less information, less transparency over um, over exactly what's going on okay. within the closed doors of Trans Mountain. Okay, we've only got a minute left. Adam, do you think that public ownership of the pipeline creates any kind of conflict of interest? Well, I don't. I, I mean, I don't think that Crown Corporation equals opaque trans, or opaque evilness. I mean, I just, I just don't think that. But to, to, to wrap up, if, if we've got a minute here, I would yeah. say the thing to remember about Trans Mountain and the process and the approval here is the process has affirmed the duty to meaningful consultate with First Nations. It has confirmed that Canada leads in environmental standards. And the approval of it is a sign to investors that Canada is a good place to do business. And this approval is good for the Canadian economy as we come out of COVID-19 and we desperately need good paying jobs and to maximize okay. the resources that we have at our disposal. Okay, with 30 seconds, Peter, if you want to make a final comment. You know, I just think um, the the economics of this project are getting worse every day. Um, the you know the moral argument, the climate crisis, is getting worse every day, and uh, we you know we just can't afford this. And by the okay. time Canadians realize what it's going to cost, I think they'll be ready to give it up.